Hi everyone, Mark here with the Juggle Gyms Podcast. I love doing these little bonus episodes for you, so today I'm bringing back something that we did last Halloween, and I guess this is now a trend for us. And every year, maybe I'll, uh, you know, time permitting, I'll read you all a spooky story. So today, I want to read you the story about worms, written by Sora Narnia, of the excellent horror-themed podcast called Knife Point Horror. I highly recommend you check it out if you like strange, unorthodox horror without a lot of gross stuff or blood and guts. But of course, I want to warn everybody listening to this right now, there is some, you know, uh, creepy imagery and some descriptive things as far as uh, what happens with the worms and the virus in this story. So maybe, uh, listener, beware. But on that, let's dive into this short story. And thank you all so much for being fans of Jungle Gyms. Thanks for being a fan of mine here in the podcast. I really appreciate the support, and I really hope you enjoy this short story. My name is Farley Sean. I'm writing this in Blue Terrace, Idaho. Tonight, I'm sitting in the apartment that I've lived in for seven years, working by candlelight, but tomorrow, I'll finally move on. Almost everyone here is dead. If I were to walk outside my apartment building right now and go out into the street, I would still be able to see stains on the pavement where people bled out over the past six weeks. There's no one to clean up the blood anymore. You see, I, I think it's here where it all began. This can be proved simply by looking through news articles from two years ago. Blue Terrace was where the mold was first seen. For all I know, I was the first human on earth to see it. When I walked out onto my balcony one day in July to check on a tomato plant my mother had given me, I noticed the mold growing on the side of the pot. It was a strange color, a brownish green. It would first register in your mind as brown, but when you looked at it long enough, there was this green. I mentioned it to my roommate, but he didn't know anything about gardening. I put my finger into the mold. It felt gritty, grittier than dirt that's completely dry. It had no moisture to it at all. It clung to the side of the pot and it covered five square inches or so. Then I noticed a little of it on the balcony itself near the very edge of it, growing right there on the cement. I thought of it as mold, but even then I had some doubts. A day after observing it on the tomato plant, I saw some of it on one of the handlebars of my racing bike. I tried to brush it away, but it held fast, so I had to chip away at it with the bottom of a cone until it flaked away almost entirely. That was another strange thing about it, right? It left no trace of itself behind like mold would. If you could manage to chip it away, it would be all gone, like every bit of it. I read about the substance in a newspaper about a week or so later. Some reader wrote in to the expert who wrote for the gardening section and mentioned it growing on corn stalks. The expert referred to it by some name, but I knew right away he had absolutely gotten it wrong. A week after that, there was an article in the Metro section called, What Could It Be? The substance had been found growing slowly on all sorts of surfaces in Blue Terrace, especially inside buildings, on walls. Inside the hospital, the high school, the Lutheran church right down the block from me, it was quickly chipped away and people just found it to be an irritant, but no one could claim to really understand its nature. When it was analyzed, 
It was found to be a lot like moss, but able to grow with only a minimal amount of moisture in the air. It was living plant life, an unusual form of it, but nothing alarming. What was strange was that it could grow on anything. You could see it sometimes on the rim of someone's coffee cup or even a piece of paper. Global warming was blamed at first in some complicated process that only vaguely made sense to everyone, but no one really knew why it grew indoors and outdoors, regardless of temperature or humidity or cleanliness or type of surface. It was studied enthusiastically by botanists. The substance was found in three more cities in the region. It took on a name, Sporangela. When the phenomenon really got out of hand, people got a little worried, but about what they didn't know. There was a picture in the Boise paper that August of the substance making a pretty pattern on the side of the convention center in the middle of the city, starting about eight feet off the sidewalk and spreading around the corner, a patch 10 feet wide and five feet long that had grown over the course of a weekend. It got so that if you lived in my region of Idaho, you couldn't go a whole day without seeing it growing somewhere. It could be in the building where you worked or on the back of a stop sign or inside the bus or maybe even on your seat. Once you'd chipped it away, it was gone, but it just grew back somewhere else. It had spread artificially somehow to places other than Blue Terrace, skipping geographic areas miles wide in direct defiance of natural logic. The phenomenon went on for about three months. It more or less disappeared with the onset of colder weather. One serious cold snap in Blue's Terrace seemed to wipe it out. It just didn't appear anymore after being removed by human hands from every reachable place it had claimed. On the night of October 19th, 2004, it fell to 30 degrees in the suburbs. That was the night that I saw the thing that scared me so badly, which I have never told anyone about. The sporangula was gone very quickly after that, except for a little, you know, aging patches of it that no one ever really bothered to remove. I was out camping. There's a place near Crown Creek, a little campground that no one pays much attention to, and I went there that weekend before the place shut down for the season. There wasn't much to do there except kayak in the creek and, you know, do some mild hiking through the thin woods. And on Saturday night, I was in my tent reading by penlight when I thought, I'd go for a walk, you know, long walk in the moonlight. I got out of the tent and I walked through the campground, which was mostly empty. And I started to hike along the southernmost stretch of Crown Creek. It led through the woods for a half a mile or so, and then the land opened up. I looked up at the stars as I walked. The land was owned by the state and became nothing but rolling hills that went on for miles. It was very peaceful. I was completely alone. After about 20 minutes of walking in the cold, I came upon a vague hump in the darkness, just a few feet away from the bank of the creek. As I got closer, I saw it was an electrical transformer, positioned out there in the middle of nowhere. I decided to stop to rest when I saw it and turned and took in a view of the creek and the land beyond it, and I sat where I was and looked at the stars. I stayed like that for about 10 minutes when I heard something off to my right, sort of near the transformer. I looked over there but couldn't see much. It sounded like something was 
moving through the grass. An animal, I thought, but moving very low and very smoothly. I stood up and squinted into the dark. And then I saw it. There was something in the grass. It was true. Something moving. It was big. It clung to the ground. It was snake-like. Worm-like, but gigantic. Like, as big as a person. The thing was brightly colored. Maybe it was totally white. It was moving past the Transformer. As I watched, the thing slithered through the grass, having come from the creek, I think. All I can say is that for about five seconds, I got an excellent view of it. My night vision by then had adjusted well. I would say the creature was about six feet long, thick as a slightly built man, when the moonlight fell on it, just so I could see that its flesh was slick and that it moved. It was turning, twisting like a screw. My eyes went to where I figured its head would be. I had stopped breathing, I think. I saw that the creature had a neck, a human-like neck. And then I saw a face. I don't know how many eyes there were, maybe none at all. I saw some marks, but all I could see for certain was that there was a long, dark mouth, like a thick slash. The only other detail I could see of the thing was that it was half covered in what looked like sporangula. The creature moved on, twisting through the grass, and it was gone fast. I was in shock, but I tried to follow it. I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't hear it anymore, so I jogged a few steps, and then the sound came again, that sound of it moving. I saw another shape moving in the dark. Near the Transformer was a golf cart. So maybe it belonged to someone working for the electric company, or maybe someone working for the campground, and it was sitting alone near the creek in the short grass. I stopped and watched the creature snake its way toward the cart. Only then did I remember I had the pen light in my pocket. I dug for it and came out with it, and I turned it on. I pointed it at where the sound was coming from and saw a little segment of the creature. I could instantly see the brownish green of Sporangela clinging to its side, and then the pattern of it disappeared as the thing twisted. I shifted the tiny ray of the pen light, which was just a dim, unfocused yellow circle. The creature moved right through it. I saw its head better. Its neck stretched a little. I saw a patch of sporangela growing on the side of the golf cart. The creature slid up the wheel well, its body somehow clinging to the cart, and moved over the patch of sporangela. And when the full length of the thing had moved past it, the patch had been scraped away in one fluid motion and there was a clean path of white paint exposed. As the thing twisted, I saw that the substance had attached itself to it, especially near that mouth. It slithered back into the grass, and so I shut off my pen light. I stood where I was. In seconds, the slithering sound moved away. This time, I didn't follow. I waited till I thought the thing was entirely gone, and then I crept up to the golf cart. I turned the light on again and touched the patch of sporangela. The creature had left some of the substance behind, but had taken most of it. 
It would have taken a person five or 10 minutes to chip that amount away, and it would have come off little by little, leaving specks behind unless you were very thorough. But the creature had made it vanish in seconds. I touched the paint. There was no moisture there, no sense of anything having moved over it. I walked back to the campground. I remember at one point I felt so alone and exposed there by the creek that I wanted to do nothing more than shout for help or break into a run, but I didn't let myself do it. Finally, I reached my tent and I got inside. I tried to sleep, but I laid awake for three hours, shivering and trying to figure out what I had just seen. I couldn't make any sense of it. In the days that came after, I became more and more convinced that what I had seen was some kind of harvesting. But the creature had not been like anything I could even find in books when I tried to research it. That size and manner of movement made it an impossibility. I didn't tell anyone what I had seen. I was going to try to wait until one of the creatures had been spotted by others, but it never happened. In winter, when the sporangula phenomenon was getting to be old news, I finally told my roommate one night what I had seen. He listened attentively, but I could tell he thought I must have been drunk. He mentioned that nothing I said surprised him, given the high amounts of UFO activity in the state around that time. I asked him if he was joking, and he said yes, he was. But I could look it up, and I would find that what he had said was at least partially true. Now, I've never really been someone who believed in UFOs outright, but I did look it up. I searched online and found a newspaper story written about the area of Idaho I lived in, published in August. It was about the unusually high number of reports to Frederick's Air Force Base about strange craft in the area. The military had to deal with these reports all the time, but they seemed more than willing to discuss the strange nature of many of the recent reports because they weren't taking them very seriously. Along with the usual once-monthly accounts of cigar-shaped crafts and bright lights in the sky were three or more, I don't know, unusual ones. The Pocatello newspaper had talked to the people who'd called in the claims to get more details. There was a unique pattern to their sightings of strange things. None of the people said anything about lights or crafts in the clouds. Instead, the common thread seemed to be large objects, the size of small cars maybe, flitting quickly from one building to another in short, completely silent jumps, always before dawn when the world was at its darkest. He mentioned that nothing I said surprised him, given the high amounts of UFO activity in the state around that time. I asked him if he was joking, and he said yes, he was. But I could look it up, and I would find that what he had said was at least partially true. Now, I've never really been someone who believed in UFOs outright, but I did look it up. I searched online and found a newspaper story written about the area of Idaho I lived in, published in August. It was about the unusually high number of reports to Frederick's Air Force Base about strange craft in the area. The military had to deal with these reports all the time, but they seemed more than willing to discuss the strange nature of many of the recent reports because they weren't taking them very seriously. Along with the usual once-monthly accounts of cigar-shaped crafts and bright lights in the sky were three or more, I don't know, unusual ones. The Pocatello newspaper had talked to the people who'd called in the claims to get more details. There was a unique pattern to their sightings of strange things. None of the people said anything about lights or crafts in the clouds. 
Instead, the common thread seemed to be large objects, the size of small cars maybe, flitting quickly from one building to another in short, completely silent jumps, always before dawn when the world was at its darkest, remaining utterly still for a minute or so, and then moving on. The objects did not bend or wobble or change shape in any way. Their coloring was impossible to make out. One person on a blog I found described one of the objects lifting off from the top of a grocery store very suddenly and disappearing upwards into the sky at such a speed that it was gone in less than two seconds. Again, with no sound. Then there was a video that someone had taken, and I found it buried in some public video sharing site. The footage was grainy and shaky, of course. And to a disinterested eye, it could almost have been anything or more likely faked. It lasted for just about 15 seconds and it showed a large, vague hump against a dark sky. The person who held the video camera kept changing settings to try to allow more light into the lens, but it really didn't do much. All that you could really see was that the hump was attached somehow to the side of what looked like a school building. There was playground equipment far in the background. The camera was 100 yards away or so and moving closer to the hump when the thing shot out of frame to the right. Nothing seemed to push it. It merely leapt away. The camera panned wildly to the right to try and follow it, but there was nothing there. There was confusion for a few seconds, and the person holding the camera tried to zoom in as best as he could to something much further off in the distance. A light tower off in an empty field. For a split second, you could see a dark hump clinging to it near the very top. 100 feet off the ground or so. But then, after a little more shakiness, the thing was simply gone for good. The video was titled UFO Getaway. I told one more person about what I had seen. It was my father. He'd always had an open mind, but even he didn't fully understand what I had experienced. I did more research into the UFO trend around the state, but found that it had ended right around the time Sporangela disappeared. For two years, I was occasionally haunted at night by the memory of what I had seen, and unnaturally disturbed by the image of dark humps on buildings leaping across the sky with no sound. But as these things do, they began to fade from my consciousness slowly but surely. I began to be able to convince myself that what I had seen on my hike could really be explained by fatigue, maybe a prank, anything. Three months ago, in August of 2006, people began to again see odd, mold-like formations growing on the sides of buildings, on walls where they worked, on highway signs, and trees, and sidewalks. This time, the substance was of a slightly different color, darker, more black than brown or green. And this time, the stuff was almost everywhere, in dozens of cities across the country and others. News of it popped up quickly. At first, of course, it was tied directly to Sporangela, and when the world learned of its first harmless manifestation in Idaho two years previous, no one was too upset. Again, it was just a strange eyesore. There didn't seem to be any health risks, but when Sporangela returned, I was immediately terrified. I told no one how I felt. My terror grew when people realized that the substance was spreading rapidly and growing everywhere. It caked on plants and cars and dog collars and dollar bills, and some said it could even form on human skin. 
A photo in Newsweek showed it covering the wings of a small airplane. People chipped it away as best as they could, but it just grew somewhere else. Now the stuff was studied much more closely by many more scientists. But of course, some had never stopped their studies of it the first time. It couldn't have been more than a week after the second wave began when a researcher in France released a report that was, at first, discredited, then accepted piecemeal, and then recognized as the total truth. Back in 2004, this researcher had been contacted by two botanists who noted how strangely Sporangela behaved and who thought that there was something else to be found in it other than the mossy vegetable material that they had discovered. They wanted to look at it with more powerful equipment than anyone had thought was necessary. So they contacted a nanotechnologist in Arizona who in turn referred them to the French researcher. He had processed Sporangela samples through a nanometric device and was baffled to find that in addition to displaying the stuff's organic components, his computer wanted to show him bewildering electronic data streams that it had uncovered in the samples. It seemed impossible, but when the researcher kept bringing the data down over the course of several months, his findings were consistent. He came to believe that there was computer-generated data in the Sporangela. He was able to prove it by feeding the data into a supercomputer. Hiding within the cells of the Sporangela were infinitely tiny streams of video information that no human computer could properly understand. Now, the computers did their best to try to simulate what the video consisted of, and after another year of study, crude images were simulated. They suggested that Sporangela samples taken from the side of any given building were filled with millions of images of the area surrounding that building. Samples from a sidewalk contained crude snapshots, quote-unquote, of people walking by, images stolen by the cells at a rate of 20 per second. There was a mind-boggling amount of video data in each handful of Sporangela. The researchers' results were argued about, retested, debated, dismissed, and ultimately embraced. The limitations of our computer technology cost us valuable time. It was way too late to save us by the time there was an agreement that the Sporangela had been observing us somehow, collecting images of the human race and its behavior and environments. The second wave of the new different substance had already come. People started getting sick. Small specks of this new sporangela were loosed easily by the slightest breeze. People said it was like swallowing an occasional bit of sand, but nothing to worry about. However, the illness that struck the human race was so ghastly that panic took hold quickly, and the sporangela was the source of all of our fears. Within a day or so of inhaling the slightest bit of the stuff, a person's blood vessels became gravely irritated. Their eyes became hideously reddened. Another day might pass before the fatal attack came. A person could be in an ambulance on their way to one of thousands of overfilled hospitals when they went into cardiac arrest and their vessels began to burst. Their pores would open and blood would flow right on through. Blood came out of their eyes, came out of their nose. Their skin went a dark purplish color and wounds actually formed from within, releasing blood from the body through the flesh. People bled out within minutes, even seconds. Their bodies became a soaked mass, just dead weight. 
It could happen on the street. There was almost no warning. Once your eyes went red, it was too late. You were death. It was only a question of how many days you had to live. It took all of two weeks to create a state of emergency all over America and the world. The new strain of sporangula was burned everywhere it could be burned or covered with foam and a sticky substance called exoclast, which sprayed from firemen's hoses. Millions of gallons layered on surfaces everywhere you went. It was much too late, of course. Particles of this sporangula were already everywhere in the air. People shut themselves in their homes only to inhale the stuff through the vents, completely unaware of it. The newspapers have shut down everywhere, but you can still get the emergency broadcast system in several places, and sometimes real live people come on, and sometimes they'll talk about the first wave of Sporangela and how maybe, just maybe, some race of beings from a place in the solar system we'll never know about brought it to a cluster of small Midwestern cities no one fussed much over in order to document our species and detect our biological weaknesses. After that, it was only a matter of harvesting the data somehow, returning it to space, and creating a viral disease born within a different sort of sporangula, which would destroy us all in a matter of months. And then it would be time for the creators of the genocide to arrive on Earth en masse. I wonder why I'm not dead yet. I suppose I have only my own terror to thank. I was one of the first people to barricade himself indoors with bottled water and canned food, and here I sit. Thank you, Costco. It's 1 a.m., November 9th, 2006, and I know I can't survive. My time will be over soon, and so tomorrow I'm just going to set out walking. Not in the hopes of being saved or anything like that, but because I'd rather die out there in the sunlight than in this cramped, forgotten apartment. <laughs> I bought a gun ten days ago. If my eyes become red with sickness, I'll take myself out by Crown Creek. I hope the end comes before I might possibly see another one of those worms. Those worms, which I've never seen mention of in any newspaper or on any website. The harvester worms, which took their samples away in flitting, silent crabs. I know what I saw. The blackish sporangela is visible growing on the side of the building across the mine, and it fills me with dread. <laughs> but to see the living things, which someday will come back to collect or dispose of its remnants would drive me insane. That motion, that twisting, snake-like motion, and the sound of the grass made being smooth beneath it would snap my mind. The sight of an old woman bleeding out and dying within 60 seconds as she emerged from a light rail station two days ago didn't do it. But the image of a collector worm's mouth would. It's awful mouth working furiously to gather and retain. Goodbye.